Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Here's Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. What is up? Welcome on into Fantasy Baseball today, and I'd like to officially welcome you to Jocktober. Frank Stanfield joined by Scott White today on the pod. We will be taking a closer look at the second base position year in review. Scott already has his early 2022 ranks out for second base. They are live on the site. We'll talk about those as well. But it's all about the Braves, baby. They are up 2-0 against the Dodgers in the NLCS. Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson. Shout out to Adam Azer. I know he used to have a nice little, uh, nice little sound bite there for him. Jock has three homers in the postseason. Most recently, a 454-foot moonshot off of Max Scherzer. The guy is locked in. Scott, my main question for you, where are the pearls, man? You're not rocking the pearl necklace. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Maybe I should. Even, even Dale Murphy broke it out when he was throwing the first pitch. Before game two on Sunday, he uh, he pulled out the pearls to celebrate Jocktober. I was trying yeah. to I was trying to research to find out like what's behind this whole phenomenon of Jock Peterson wearing the pearls. Oh, there there's no there's nothing behind it. Yeah, there's he, there's no backstory, he's, right? He said he said uh, I can't really say what he said, but <laughs> <laughs> his explanation for why he's wearing the pearls is he's a bad witch. So he didn't say which. All right. Well, yeah. The Halloween season is here, so we will uh we'll leave it at that. Uh maybe you could dye your hair blonde like uh Jock Peterson has got. Some some kind of can we do that? If the Braves win the World Series, can we get you to like bleach blonde the hair, Scotty? Probably not. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, outside of like if you don't reside in Texas or I guess in Massachusetts, somewhere in the northeast. Uh, then the chan- chances are you're probably rooting for the National League right now. So uh, that's exactly what I'm doing. Let's go Braves. I'll just leave it at that. I mean, look, if the Dodgers advance, I, I will be sad for you, Scotty. But uh, we these are, are, you know, these. Let's not let's not downplay the excitement of these first two games here. Both oh, walk-off wins. The first, I think I was reading from Jason Stark today. The first time a best of seven series has started with two walk-off wins, and the first time. I believe consecutive games a team's walked off since the Braves Twins World Series in 1991 when the Braves did it twice. Um, so, you know, heart-stopping, heart-stopping games, Frank. A little, I was a little stressed this weekend watching them, especially <laughs> the eighth inning of game two when the Braves seemed hell-bent on making the second out on the base paths and managed to avoid it every time and were... <laughs> That's the inning where they were able to pull even. So, yeah, that was uh, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun because everybody was safe every time. But, uh, yeah, that was exciting. Yeah, exciting to say the least. Look, we lead with Jock Peterson, what he's doing to this point. He's obviously having a great postseason for them. But Eddie Rosario, man, what a game in game two. Goes four for four, uh, a few very close Base running plays, which you just mentioned, the play at home, the, the slide that he had was just fantastic. So, uh, yeah, it's been it's been an awesome start to the NLCS and the ALCS. I mean, we're recording this on Monday, and the Red Sox are absolutely destroying the Astros. So let's see where that series goes uh, from there. Uh, before we hit second base, let's 
Got a few news items that I want to talk about. Most notably, Fernando Tatis will not have shoulder surgery. He has opted against it, and he is confident that he'll be able to strengthen the shoulder this offseason as an alternative to having that surgery. But uh, basically everything that you read from like sports doctors or Twitter doctors, I guess, like even pro football doctors. Real doctors or just people who are pretending they're doctors? Uh, you know, some kind of combination. Uh, but okay. Dr. David Chow actually is a doctor, and he is a Padres fan, and, and he said repeatedly that Fernando Tatis will need surgery at some point. So, I don't know. Maybe he's young enough where, like, he can rehab this and he'll be fine for next year, but mm-hmm. it is worrisome because you're going to have to spend what's likely at least a top three pick. You know, maybe some people get scared off and he slips, you know, lower into the top five, but he he's not escaping the first round. So, so, so yeah, there's a lot to dive into here, and I was tweeting a lot about it earlier today because it seemed like the initial reaction from people on Twitter, both people who, you know, are in are in the fantasy baseball industry and, and just people who, you know, just commenters chiming in, uh, the reaction seemed to be, well... If he's not going to have surgery, we obviously have to downgrade him. And I I was kind of surprised by that reaction because I figured surgery or not, we're going to be worried about Tatis's shoulder going into next year. Because, I mean, look, look at uh, Cody Bellinger, his dislocation, and and he's had all kinds of trouble coming back from his shoulder surgery last offseason. It it wasn't going to be a quick recovery for Fernando Tatis. I, I think people were a little a little too sanguine about the the surgical intervention option if if this is how they're responding to Tatis not having it. And of course I'm I'm not a doctor. I, I presume he's getting advice from doctors in making this decision. Um and, and the other thing I, that maybe there's some confusion about and, and it's possible I'm confused. I, I tried looking back uh, at, at articles from earlier this year to get to the bottom of it. Now, the the shoulder injury for Tatis first came to our attention in spring training. Remember, he made a play in the field and came off the field wincing, um, you know, had his left arm tucked up and we're all freaked out at that point about Tatis. They, they, they quickly ruled out any kind of long-term absence for him. But the way it was described at the time is he's had problems with this shoulder dating back to his time in the minor leagues and these flare-ups would happen occasionally, even way back then. Uh, and then, you know, so later he had a following through on a swing. Tatis hurt the shoulder again, left the game. We were all worried he was going to miss the season and it ended up being just a very short absence. And I, had, I think there was a third episode during yeah. the season, right? Yeah. Um, I had slide, to, maybe. I had to eat my hat because of it. Remember that? Well, I think that was on the check swing. <laughs> yeah. One, the, second, <laughs> the second episode. But... My point is, I think I think those were all flare-ups of the same thing, right? He's been dealing with this for years. It wasn't something that just happened this year, and he's managed to manage it without anybody knowing about it, really, until this year. Uh, and he seems confident that he can continue to avoid surgery through strengthening exercises. He ended up missing about 20 games this year with the injury, which, all things considered, isn't that much. You know, he hit 40... Six home runs, I believe it was. Stole 25 bases. Um, he actually missed 32 games, Scotty. But you're right. Yeah, but with, with the injury itself, I think I read it was like 22 or something. Maybe All right, because, yeah, there was, was a co- there was a COVID situation with him. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, he still hit 282, 42 homers, and had 25 steals 40, in 130 okay, 42 games. 42 home runs. 
So I don't know. I, I still see him as the top player next year. I'm, I'm not totally like, obviously there are still concerns about the shoulder and you have to, you have to weigh the risk and reward there. I just think the reward is so high. Like there's not really, except for maybe Acuna, who of course has his own concerns coming off a torn ACL for a five by five league. There's nobody who really approaches that kind of upside that Tatis has. And he dealt with the injury this year, again, going back to spring training. So whole season, he dealt with it fine, still performed like technically not the top player in fantasy, but pretty close and certainly the top one on a per game basis. I, I don't I don't really feel motivated to move him down from the top spot, but I'm also the guy who currently ranks Acuna second for, for Roto Leagues. I think we'll have a clearer sense of how that's going to go as draft season actually approaches and maybe I'll move Acuna down if it doesn't sound like he's going to be ready in time. But I don't, I don't feel particularly worried about either. I, there are risks there, but nobody's really a slam dunk. And I think we've already seen Tatis play through this and he was awesome, you know? And Acuna, torn ACL, I mean, that's something people come back from all the time. I, I, I just think they're both going to be worth taking that high, even with, even with the... Even acknowledging, yes, there's some obvious risk there. I just don't think it's enough to scare me away. Yep. Tati still finishes the fifth overall player in 5x5 Roto Leagues this past year, despite missing those 30 games. And he averaged just about four fantasy points per game, which was tied for the most with Vladimir Guerrero. So on a per-game basis, I mean, those are, those are your that, two and, and that's top a hitters. Points, that's a points measurement. Yep. I, I would say probably not take Tatis first in points leagues now because there are more who can compete with them in that format. But with that, that power-speed combination in 5x5, in five five, you know, Roto Leagues, um, I, I just don't think there's much comparison for that. Except yep. Acuna, who, of course, has his own concerns. All right. Well, the glass half full, the positive spin on Fernando Tatis here from Scotty. We'll see uh, We'll see how Fernando Tatis is doing, I don't know, two, three months from now. Car- the Cardinals have parted ways with their manager, Mike Schilt, which I think caught some people by surprise. <sighs> or, maybe, oh, yeah. or maybe not, because, I don't know, I saw a few Cardinals fans on Twitter that were like, okay with this happening? I don't know. By, <laughs> by all accounts... It seemed like Mike Schilt was a pretty good manager, so it kind of caught me off guard. But well, all but Padre fans were stunned by it because I think, um, you know, he'd been such a fixture in the organization, and the team had had so much success so, under him. Most of it pretty unexpected. You know, it seemed like they consistently out, outperformed under Mike Schilt and uh, the Cardinals GM, whose name I can never say right, John Mazilak, right? Yeah, he said uh, it didn't have anything. To, they thought they thought Mike Schilt managed the club well. It was just philosophical di- differences, and he wouldn't go into what those philosophical differences were. But you know, a lot of Cardinals fans, I saw, oh, he didn't bring so and so into the game and into the wild card game in this inning. They they were trying to pin it all to one bullpen decision, which is just a dumb thing fans do sometimes. Like, I feel like the easy thing, easiest thing for a fan base to harp on a manager about is bullpen management. It, like, there's never been a manager who's good at bullpen management. Like, that's just, they're all bad. You're probably Cause, right cause, about you that. know, sometimes moves backfire, right? Like, it's just easy to say, oh, he should have done this instead. Uh, I know that was the, the, the top complaint for Cardinals fans about Mike Matheny, the previous manager. Like, no, no fan base is ever satisfied with how the manager uses the bullpen. So hmm. I, I'm, I, I do feel certain that was not the reason Mike Schilt 
was fired, I suspect there was some kind of argument and maybe things got too heated or maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the, the front office just wanted, wanted more top down control, more, more direct control over what was happening on the field than Schultz was willing to give them. So um, he's out. My guess is he becomes the Padres next manager, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that that would be great. I think any team would be happy to get Mike Schilt. So uh, we'll see if he latches on right away. Oftentimes, we'll see where a team, a manager's let go, and maybe he takes a year off and then, you know, rejoins. But I, I don't know. I think I think there's a good chance that Mike Schilt latches on here with someone. So we'll see if it is the Padres indeed. I did want to give a few Arizona Fall League updates. This is really the first time in my life that I've followed it close-ish, but... There's not really much else going on right now. Well, there's football, obviously, and there's postseason baseball. But if you want like a daily fix for baseball, you can follow Arizona Fall League box scores. Uh, Spencer Torkelson and Brett Beatty, that's the Tigers' top prospect and one of the Mets' top prospects, respectively. They are both 7 for 14 so far in the AFL, uh, and there are three hitters who have two home runs each. The Rockies' first base prospect, Michael Taglia, and then Lars Newbar, friend of the program. Not really, because we've never had him on, but fun name to say, so we'll call him a friend. And then Red's middle infield prospect, Ivan Johnson. They each have two home runs here in Arizona Fall League. Anything else happens, I will uh, let you know. I think at some point, we'll probably do a podcast where we talk about what's happened overall in the Arizona Fall League. Maybe we'll get the Welsh on because he's obviously following it very closely and you know he's he's awesome with prospects. So uh, we'll, we'll do that sometime soon. I don't know. Maybe within the next month, we'll take a break from these uh, these early previews. But speaking of which... Let's jump right in to second base, the year in review. We'll do it the same way we have the past couple. We'll take a look at the top 10 in Roto this past season. And then after that, we will uh, take an early look at Scott's rankings. But number one, no surprise, Trey Turner will have both second base and shortstop eligibility heading into next year. And he finishes as the number one uh, second baseman. 328 batting average, 28 homers, 107 runs scored, 77 RBI, and 32 steals. He finishes as the number three overall player in Roto and I have a feeling Scott that really regardless of format like Roto he's going to be a top five pick very easily in my mind um maybe in points leagues he slips a little bit but I still think he's a first round pick uh Trey Turner yeah in points leagues oh yeah um yeah I think so too uh, let me see if I can pull up real quickly what he averaged in head-to-head points leagues this past year. 3.74. So that was the highest at second base. The highest among second base eligible players. The next closest was Marcus Simeon at 3.66. And then after that, Jose Altuve at 3.6. And I'm just going to keep saying names. And <laughs> next would be Ozzy Albies at 3.45. And then there's a pretty big drop-off. Oh, no. No, there was. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Trey Turner was by far the highest scoring second baseman, even in points leagues on a per game basis. So, yes, I, I would agree that, uh, especially now that he has that dual eligibility. And, and he's become less steals fo- focused as he's gotten older here. He actually only stole 32 bases this past year, which remember when he first started his career. Well, he kept getting hurt, but it was on like a 60 steel pace, a 70 steel pace. Like, so I think you could actually make the case that Trey Turner maybe is even a little better suited for points leagues than Roto. No. You know what? I'm going to make that argument about somebody else. I think I was making the <laughs> argument I meant to make about Whit Merrifield for Trey Turner. But anyway. 
let's keep going. Yes. Off to a great start here. No, no, that's that's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've already seen some early drafts where Turner goes as the first overall pick in Roto, where, and I don't think that he has the same upside as a Tatis or Acuna, but just so safe, you know. Batting average, well over 300 each of the past two seasons. Still going to give you some speed. Power has really come on here for Trey Turner the past couple of years. So uh, I, w- I would be perfectly fine making that argument uh, in a Roto League. Number two at the position was Marcus Semien. He had 265, 45 homers, 115 runs, 102 RBI, 15 steals, the number seven overall player in Roto this past season. Just a monster season. A prove-it deal. One year with the Toronto Blue Jays and... I would imagine he's going to get paid by somebody. I don't know who that's going to be. He is an unrestricted free agent, but this is now two of the past three years, Scott, where Semyon has finished top 20 overall in Roto. So Mm -hmm. to me, I'm starting to look at that 2020 as the outlier. I don't know that he's going to be, you know, a top 20 player again, but even with some slight regression, if he's a second or third round pick, I think because of the power and speed, he could still live up to that. Yeah, I have him... I have him as a second rounder. Uh, I pointed out before that, you know, we don't know where he's going and, and where he ultimately winds up might change my thinking. If he winds up in Detroit, if he winds up in San Francisco, for some reason, I guess that's possible. If he winds up in a harder place to hit, then then maybe he he drops out of my second round. But um, he actually hit the majority of his home runs on the road this year. So I don't think we can credit his performance all to the to the favorable hitter environment he ended up in. Of course, his, in, in 2019, that other year referring to, he was in Oakland, which is not a very good place to hit. So, you know, it, it's hard to square that short 2020 season where he was pretty awful with the two great seasons on each side of it. Because, you know, I, I was seeing that, especially after the way last year went, that 2019 season was looking like an outlier for Marcus. I mean, and I do know you and I both had him as somebody to avoid on draft day. And we ended up looking pretty stupid because he just kept, he just kept hitting home runs. Yeah. I, I don't see much reason to write him off, but it'll depend kind of where he ends up signing. The only thing that stands out to me is his quality of contact is really not great, especially for someone who just hit 45 home runs. So mm-hmm. 241 XBA, 444 expected slug. Those were both right. well below his actual numbers. If that's right. something was, that you buy into, then you know you might be wary of that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And he, he was, uh, I did give Marcus Simeon the award for biggest overachiever when we did the awards show because of that disparity between his expected stats and his actual stats. And I'm glad you brought it up. But that's, that's kind of why I referred to him hitting more of most of his home runs on the road because... I don't know. To me, that counts for something. Now, I will point out that he was playing in the AL East, which is has the has the most hitter-friendly parks of any division. So, you know, a lot of his road games were obviously in those parks. But still, um, you know, he steals some bases too, gets on base a lot. There's a lot to like. Be you know, he doesn't have to hit forty. When he was at forty-three, forty-five. 45. He doesn't have to hit 45 home runs again to be worth a second round pick. No, he doesn't. If he hits 30 homers with 10 to 12 steals and the counting stats that you get in the Blue Jays lineup, that's likely worth a second or even third round pick for next year. Number three at the position was Ozzy Albies. He finished 259 batting average, 30 homers, 103 runs, 106 RBI, 20 steals. So really 
can't call him a five category contributor because the batting average was low ish 259. It's better than league average, but it's not like he's a contributor. Uh, but he, right. he did contribute in the other four categories for sure. Finish as the number 16 overall player. He's a lot like Bo Bichette, where he has power and speed, but he's doing it with a lower OPS. He really doesn't walk all that much. Uh, and <laughs> the splits, if you're someone who's like scared of bad splits, well, you shouldn't be for Albies because this is just who he is. Even though he's a switch hitter, he crushes left-handed pitching, and he's quite like mediocre against right-handed pitching, and, and that's who he's always been, and he still finds a way to put up these massive fantasy seasons. So because of that, yeah. I'm, I'm not really worried about it. No, I mean, that's just... <laughs> He's he's not that great from the left side of the plate. It's so weird. He, like why, you get why so many he, more at bats there. He ended up hitting twenty one home runs from the left side of the okay, plate. Okay, so but. he gets more power from that side, but no, lower batting. No, average. he doesn't get more power. I'm just saying he's I, I don't want to overstate it either and say you don't want to start him on the days he's facing a right handed pitcher of course. because but he had two thirty seven with seven forty nine OPS and against righties three twenty three with a nine forty OPS. Why doesn't he just it's, try it though? Like why doesn't he just try batting righty against right-handed pitching? I would love I, for him to. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Cedric Mullins, um, I think he's he was batting exclusively left-handed, right, this year? Yeah, the past two years, since I believe since the start of last year. Or maybe it started this year. I think it Either started way. this year. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I've, I've said for a few years now that switch hitting, I, I think it's overrated and I think a lot of players would benefit from giving it up and, and looking at Ozzy Albee's splits considering he's so much better against th- from the side where he gets sees the least reps, you know? Because usually, usually what ends up happening with switch hitters is they become much better from the left side. Even if they don't start out that way, they're just seeing so many more pitches from the left side that it ends up being their better side. And Ozzy Albee's being that much better consistently from the right side, even though he doesn't see as many pitches there like that just makes me wonder how good he could be. Uh, he ends up being an extreme fly ball hitter. Cause that's basically all he does from the left side is just golf it. And uh, that keeps his batting average, you know, lower than you'd expect it to be given his strikeout rate. I, I, I think, you, I think it's safe to view him as like a 260, 265 hitter. He did have, one year where he hit 295, but I think that's you know that's going to be more the exception than the rule. So that's really his downside is relative to other players you draft in the third round range. Let's say Ozzy Albee's probably not going to give you as much batting average, but he'll give you a useful number of steals. He'll give you a useful amount of power. He'll the run and RBI production will be great because that Braves lineup is so strong, and uh, I, I think I think he's pretty much locked into that that third round range at this point in his career. But yeah, Frank, you know, I don't want to keep harping on those splits, but he actually did have five at-bats from the right side against a right-handed pitcher this year. I don't know who it was. I don't know why he made that hmm. decision, but... How'd he do? He did have five at-bats from the right side against a right-handed pitcher, and he homered in two of them. What? Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's interesting. Ah. Uh. I would love to ask somebody in like the Braves organization. I don't. I don't know how I. <laughs> I would contact anyone in the Braves organization. But man, that's that is interesting. Um, yeah, man, it is. I've got to. I've, I've got to look more into that. But we'll see. Changing subjects again. Uh, I meant to point this out. So, Ozzy Albies is third here in terms of where he finished. Right. Yep. One and two. Trey Turner and Marcus Simeon. They wouldn't have been eligible 
here entering this season. So, you know, if this season hadn't just happened, if they hadn't just gotten 20 games at second base, then Ozzy Albies, we'd be talking about him as number one. So that, we're going to see this as a theme throughout second base, the number of players who we, who, who, who we think of playing other positions, picking up second base eligibility in 2021 and then carrying it over to 2022. It's a lot of them. And it, it's make the position much deeper and much stronger than we're used to seeing. Second base is not a weak position anymore. In fact, it might be the strongest infield position. First base is deeper, but it's deep in kind of mid-tier talent. Mm-hmm. Shortstop is you know, has a lot of really high-end talent, but it thins out very quickly. I don't know. Second base is at least similar to those two. And then third base is by far the weakest, by far. <laughs> oh, we're going to have a fun podcast on uh, on Thursday talking about third base. But speaking of what you just brought up for about, you know, these other names up top, Jorge Polanco, I believe, did not have second yep. base eligibility coming into the season. He was and, short and Jonathan, Jonathan India didn't. Yep. And we'll talk about him in just a little bit too. But- Javier Baez didn't. Correct. Um, Jazz Chisholm. No, I think Jazz Chisholm did, actually. Yeah, he might have. Jorge Polanco, by the way, 269 batting average, 33 homers, 97 runs, 98 RBI, 11 steals. Scott, close your ears, close your eyes. About to bring up some stats here. 555 OPS in April. That's when Scott dropped him. And then an 813 OPS. I dropped him in May. I, right. I gave him two solid months to turn things around. Yeah, he got up to a slow start in May as well. 813 OPS or better in every other month, including two over a 900 OPS. So uh, I don't know that I'm buying the power per se here, Scott. Maybe, you know, age 27 season, maybe just finally tapped into that in-game power. I noticed his pull rate was way high. It was like near 53%. He was below 40% the previous three seasons. So that seems to have unlocked some power for him. And when you look at the other Twins power hitters the past couple of seasons, all of them just started pulling the ball like crazy. So I wonder if it's just some kind of organizational thing. But yeah, Polanco was amazing. Yeah, and he was great in 2019 too. You know, only two-thirds of the home run production. Uh, But he hit 295 with 22 home runs. It was basically a must-start player in 2019. And uh, then had some ankle trouble last year, which is why I was... I was so high on him coming into this season. I thought he was he was he was in for a bounce back season. It it took a while for him to come around, and the bounce back ended up being even bigger than I thought it could be with that increased home run production. But he doesn't strike out much. He's consistently kept his batting his strikeout rate below twenty percent. In some years, it's closer to fifteen percent. Uh, and, and also, he hardly puts he hardly ever puts the ball on the ground. The career ground ball rate of thirty three point five. You know, if somebody has like a forty percent ground ball rate, that's that's not bad. His is well below that. A lot of line drives, which helps batting average. A lot of fly balls, which helps power production. Combined with that low strikeout rate, you know, it's a little surprising. He hit only two sixty nine, and there may be some amount of trade off with the batting average and the home runs. You know depending on how often he's putting the ball in the air. But I I don't know. To me, that points to a pretty high floor. I'm not expecting him to repeat the stat line next year, but I would consider him a top 10 second baseman for next year. Not top five, but top 10. As we will reveal in just a little bit. Number five at the position, Jose Altuve, 278 batting average, 31 homers, 117 runs scored, 83 RBI, and 
five steals. He now has exactly 31 home runs in two of the past three seasons. Uh, he had a career high fly ball rate, also had a career high infield fly ball rate, way up, like 18% infield fly ball rate this year. Uh, basically just selling out for power at this point. It didn't completely sink his batting average or anything. It was a great season for Altuve. I'm, it kind of oh, yeah. seems like I'm talking down about him, but he's, he's interesting. He's a different player now. He's interesting because he's basically, he excels in two categories, home runs and runs, and then he's just kind of okay in batting average, RBI, and steals, which isn't a bad thing, yeah. but he's, well, he's, he's just unique he's, at this point. He used to be the preeminent batting average source, right? Back yeah. when he was a first-rounder. And he used to be an elite base dealer on top of it. He's basically given up running, even though he's still fast. It's just not something he does anymore. And he's traded off the batting average for power, really sells out for power, uh, hitting the ball in the air, pulling the ball in the air a lot, which works out because of that short porch in left field in his home park. He, he hit 19 of his 31 home runs at home, had a 932 OPS there versus 750 on the road. You know, he's not leaving for a few more years. He's not he's not going to be a free agent for a few years, so he still gets to enjoy that park, and his, he seemed like he's really tailored to swing for it. And uh, certainly we're not going to have the same level of concern about Jose Altuve going into next year that we did going into this year when he was coming off, of course, the uh, the sign-stealing scandal, and, and so people were already inclined to doubt him, and then he had a... Really bad regular season performance, short as it was. Came around in the playoffs, which is why I know we were high on him on this podcast. But uh, I think I think pretty much put everybody's concerns to rest. And I mentioned in points leagues, he was third in points per game after Turner and Simeon. You know, his skill set's probably a little more geared for points leagues now because there's not many steals and there's not many strikeouts. There's never been many strikeouts for him. So uh, that may impact it. But the fact that you know, it, it's debatable. The fact that we can debate fifth is where he finished in Roto last year. Yep. And there's others that are going to come after them that we could debate putting ahead of him. It's just it's just a really crowded position in, in this range yep. that we're talking about now. And I'm with you. I, I might argue that he's better in points leagues at this point. That's It doesn't make him bad in, in Roto or anything, but right. it's just kind of what his skill set is at this point. So Jose Altuve has been a high-quality second baseman for a long time, and if you enjoy high-quality meat, you need to try ButcherBox. No more searching the grocery store for 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, or wild-caught seafood. Get it delivered right to your door today with Butcher Box. My fiance and I made chili this weekend using their ground beef, and oh my. Oh my good goodness gracious. It was amazing. It was so tasty and fresh. Can't recommend it enough. Every month, Butcher Box will ship a curated selection of high quality meat right to your home. Each box contains 8 to 14 pounds of meat. Depending on your box type, that's enough for 24 individual meals. Customize your box or go with one of theirs. Either way, you get exactly what you want. Right now, ButcherBox is offering new members a 10 to 16 pound turkey free in their first box. Just go to butcherbox.com FBT to sign up. That's butcherbox.com FBT to receive a free turkey in your first box. Thanksgiving's on the way. Who doesn't want a free turkey? Come on. Again, butcherbox.com slash FBT. 
Number six at second base this past season, Whit Merrifield. He hit 277, 10 homers, 97 runs scored, 40 steals. The steals were second most in MLB. He is a compiler, and I'm not saying this in a bad way. Availability is the best ability, and that is what Whit Merrifield offered, offers. He has played every single game over the past three seasons. That is almost impossible. Like today's age, any sport that you want to talk about is just insane. The fact that Whit Merrifield has been able to do that. However, he's turning 33 in January. Slugging percentage, ISO, home run to fly ball rate, they were all career lows for him. So I don't really think that we can count on him for much, if any, kind of power production, Scott. And it wouldn't surprise me if that just like completely falls off the face of the earth. Yeah. So he used to be, you know, at his very best, he was a good source of batting average and a passable source of home run. Like it, it wouldn't, he wouldn't set you back that much in the home run category for a guy who you drafted predominantly for steals. But that, that appears to be not the case. He, he, he seems more one dimensional than ever. You know, still led the AL with 40 steals. He was one of two guys with more than 35 steals and all the majors. So uh, still a standout in that most coveted category. And that's why he's going to rank higher in Roto Leagues and 5 by 5 Leagues than he will in Points Leagues. But I think his skill set has changed, shifted a little. That it actually, it actually looks like a Points League skill set because he still doesn't strike out much. He hits a ton of doubles. He led the majors with 42 doubles. He does things that that, that scoring format rewards that Roto doesn't. This was the argument I meant to make for him, but I started making for Trey Turner for some reason because I got mixed up. <laughs> so just because of the, just because of the extreme scarcity of stolen bases and how much you have to pay up for him, he ends up going higher in Roto Leagues. But I think it's going to feel like less of a concession to draft Merrifield as your starter in a points league last year. Uh uh, next year, I mean. I think if you draft him in Roto, you're designing your team in a certain way that just, okay, I'm going to take this hit in the offensive categories to get this big glob of steals here early on. But you you really have to design the rest of your draft around that pick. When in points leagues, you draft with Maryfield as your starter halfway through the draft, and it's, it's just going to be a good starter for you. So, um, I don't know, kind of a weird player in that way. And I have a feeling that Whit Maryfield's still going to be drafted decently high in Roto Leagues next year. And look, he's going to be a standout in steals. He's likely going to score runs, but really not giving you uh, much else. Uh, especially, like, batting average is fine, but, like, he's not a, a contributor in that anymore. So uh, I think he might get overdrafted in, the, in that format uh, in next year. Number seven at the position, we have Brandon Lau. He hit 247 with 39 homers, 97 runs, 99 RBI, and seven steals. He got off to... An awful start. His first two months, he hit 189 with a 31% strikeout rate. His final four months, he hit 272. Strikeouts came down about six percentage points. 933 OPS from June 1st on for Brandon Lau. I know yeah. he's inconsistent, Scott, like overall throughout the course of the season, but like you look at the last three seasons, Scott, it, like his final numbers are consistent. Like they are what they are. I think he's going to hit 250 to 260 with big power. Great counting stats in that lineup and six to eight steals. So like 
the the road to the end of the season might be frustrating, but that's kind of just who he is at this point. Well, the thing is, we got a chance to see it play out over a full season, really, for the first time. His He played 149 games this year. His high previously was 82. So, you know, we, we didn't really know what a full season of Brandon Loud looked like. And with as many extremes ups and downs as... Uh, as many extreme ups and downs as there's been for him over his career, and of course this year included, I think that was important. Obviously, 39 home runs, I think that we made a big deal of um, the record that that Salvador Perez set at catcher, the home run record at catcher. Uh, Brandon Lau... Let's see, I'm trying to... I think Davey Johnson holds the record at 43 for a second baseman. Brandon Lau had 39. He wasn't far... He, he was closing in on his own record. Now, I think he hit three home runs on the second to last day of the season, so... Well, didn't Semyon... Didn't Semyon just technically break the record because he was at second base? That's it. Yep. yep. That's it. That's it. Yep, so Semyon owns that record now. Man, misremembering things here. It's October. <laughs> I can get away with it. Um, it's actually Jocktober, Scott, but I'll let you go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, uh, so what was, what was I going to say? So Brandon Lau, he hit three home runs on the second to last day of the season, right? So he very quickly went from mid-30s to almost 40. And that, that I mean, that, that the number he put up in that column stands out more because of that. Uh, but the point is, if... If we, I, I feel like we can go into next season with a higher level of trust in him than we've ever had before, and we can ride out these highs and lows a little easier, and we can be a little stressed about that, a little less stressed about that investment in Brandon Lau. So that's good. I mean, it clearly puts him in this group with Altuve and Merrifield and, and whatever. He's clearly a high-end second baseman now. The reason I'm going to rank him certainly behind Altuve's behind a couple others that we haven't gotten to yet is because the Rays still sat him sometimes against lefties. And that, that you know, if you, if you can't count on him being an everyday player, that that hurts. That hurts. Definitely hurts in points leagues too. I mean, where you yeah. where volume matters more there. So, uh, yeah, Lau hit 198 with his 662 OPS against lefties. It's It's quite bad, so I can't... Can't really blame the Rays at this point for uh, for benching him there. Number eight at the position was Javier Baez. He had 265, 31 homers, 18 steals, awful plate discipline once again, a near 34% strikeout rate, just a 5% walk rate. And it's just, it's very frustrating for me because last year was the first time I finally bought into Javier Baez, Scott, and he was, I don't know, like there's a lot of people that had these random awful shortened seasons because whatever it was obviously an odd year with COVID and everything but I'm just so frustrated because then the next year he bounces back and he was awesome this past year um I I really don't know what to make of of Javier Baez it's awful play discipline but he's he's such a great athlete that he's able to like overcome it yeah yeah it's he's become an extreme a more extreme version of himself because the scary thing about investing in Javier Baez has been, okay, he puts up pretty good numbers, borderline elite numbers, particularly for Roto Leagues, but he relies on an outlier Babbitt. He relies on an outlier home run to fly ball rate. 
he has to because his plate discipline is so bad. And what happens if if those kind of come back down to earth? And for the most part, they haven't. But the thing is, the plate discipline got even worse this year. 33.6% strikeout rate. And yet the BABIP became even more of an outlier. The home run to fly ball rate became even more of an outlier. Like he, the thing we expected him to regress in, he got better at. And I just like whenever that crashes and, and maybe it won't until his mid thirties, but whenever it does, it's going to be a hard fall, really hard fall for Javier Baez. So, um, you know, you have, you have to rank him pretty high, but he's, he's never somebody I'm going to be thrilled to draft. And I certainly somebody you rank higher in five by five leagues than in points. Yeah, yeah. The plate discipline is just going to absolutely crush him in points leagues where you lose points for strikeouts, obviously. He also did this in a contract year, so he's a free agent as well. Let's see where Javier Baez lands. That obviously could affect his value as well. Max Muncy finished number nine at the position. We spoke about him a little bit on the first base podcast. The strikeout rate was a career best for him. He, hate, he made more contact. He did slow down over the final two months, but was kind of dealing with some injuries and stuff. I think we kind of know who Max Muncie is at this point. 250, 260 batting average, lots of power, really good OBP. He's better uh, in points league. So skip him for now. Uh, number 10, I did want to talk about Jonathan India. 269 batting average, 21 homers, 98 runs, 69 RBI, and 12 steals. And we've seen this before, Scott, where there's like these prospects that come up and they just perform much better in the major leagues than they did in the minors. Maybe Jonathan India is just the next name to do that, but he never hit more than 11 home runs or higher had higher than an 814 OPS in any level uh, at the at any any season in the minors. So I will just point that out. Um, but he was great. Basically, from June 1st on, he was he was amazing. Uh, so what do you think about mm-hmm. India? Yeah, he wasn't in the minors for that long. It's worth pointing out. Very very quick path to the majors, and. Um, yeah, did you, you mention them numbers over the final four months? No, I didn't mention it. But yeah, you can. Okay, so if you give him, you give him, you give him a pass for April and May. Obviously, April was just a disastrous month for hitting around the league. I'm willing to give everybody a pass for April, May. You know, obviously, rookie breaking into the majors. You know, you 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 can understand that taking some time, but the final four months. Uh, let's see. I'm getting different numbers than you wrote down here. Um, I have him... What are we leaving out? Did you leave out his October numbers by chance? Uh, numbers different. Maybe. Maybe I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. it looks like he left out the two days in October. So I'm going to include the two days in October. Uh, from June 1st on, Jonathan India hit 281 with 18 home runs in two-thirds of the season. 18 home runs. 10 steals and an 882 OPS. Now, a lot of that OPS was on base percentage, which we don't care about in 5x5 five five leagues. We do in points leagues. But, um, I mean, that's that's pretty studly. That's pretty studly. It's sad that he loses third base eligibility. He was primarily a third baseman in the minors. Didn't play a single game there in the majors this year, so exclusively a second baseman, and, and that's not the position we need him at the most. But I would say with those numbers... Um, and the kind of potential he showed over the final two thirds of the season, uh, he's clearly top twelve at this position, and uh, I, I would put him even in the top ten in points leagues, where Baez would probably drop behind him, and uh, obviously the the walk rate gets a little more 
a little more credit in the points leagues. We'll take a quick break. When we return, early 2022 second base rankings here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. All right, so let's take a look at Scott's top 20 at the position. They're currently live on the site if you want to follow along with us. The top five here, we have Trey Turner, Marcus Semien, Ozzy Albies, Jose Altuve, and Whit Merrifield. Again, the top five, Turner, Semien, Albies, Jose Altuve, and uh, Merrifield. And I'm so, not... Go ahead. So this is a position because there's a lot of low strikeout guys and a lot of high steel guys. You're going to see more differentiation between the five by five rankings and the points rankings. And so just to clarify what you're giving here are the five by five rankings Whit Merrifield, as I said, would rank lower in points leagues. They'll maybe be less of a concession at points leagues. He would be eighth in points leagues rather than fifth. Uh, Max Muncie would actually be fifth in points leagues. And I believe that's the only change here. Those are the only changes in the top five. Six through ten, we have Max Muncy, Brandon Lau, Cattell Marte, Javier Baez, and Jorge Polanco. We have not talked about Cattell Marte yet. Uh, he actually was very good this year. The problem is he only played 90 games. So he hit 318, 14 homers, a 909 OPS for Cattell Marte. And uh, obviously injuries have been an issue. He has missed 39% of his possible games over the past two seasons due to a bunch of different injuries. Uh, and his latest update actually had the Diamondbacks GM saying that Cattell Marte is going to focus on one position next year. And it sounds like they're leaning towards second base because that's what he played more towards the end of the year. And the Diamondbacks have an outfield prospect and Alec Thomas, who's who's pretty close to uh, pretty close to the majors as well. So for all those reasons, I think that he'll be at second base. But uh, do you have any thoughts on Cattell Marte? I think he's great. Uh, his expected batting average this year was 303. You don't wow. see you don't see an expected batting average above 300 very often. Um, obviously, he hit 318, so it was even better than that. But you know, you, for expected stats, you you don't see as much you don't see as much on the the as high end point. You know, the end points aren't as high and low as the actual batting averages end up being, just because that's the way. That's the way that sort of thing works. Um, but Cattell Marte, between injuries, I, I think really validated that breakthrough 2019 season he had where I, I would say he was the best second baseman in fantasy in, in that, that breakthrough 2019 season. You know, the power production wasn't nearly as good as in, in 2020, as short as it was. But this year he's still, you know, he he... His average exit velocity was 91.1. His hard hit rate was 48.4. I mean, that's that, that. those are the kind of numbers you'd expect from a power hitter. And uh, after getting off to a slow start with the home runs, Cattell Marte ended up hitting 10 over the final two months. So he ended up with 14 in 340 at-bats. 
a little more than half a season, basically ended up with 14 home runs. So, you know, a guy who's going to hit probably over 300, maybe about 290, let's say 290, 300. Cattell Marte will hit with 25 homers, good plate discipline numbers, uh, provided he stays healthy, of course. And I, I think that firmly puts him in the second tier at this position. You know, you have Trey Turner, the obvious first rounder, Marcus Simeon, the second rounder, Ozzy Albies, the third rounder. But then you have this glut of names like Jose Altuve, Max Muncy, Brandon Lau, Cattell Marte, and and Whit Merrifield. I mean, that's Marte's right there with them, and that's that's an impressive group in its own right. I mean, you're not going to feel bad about having any of those guys as your starting second baseman. I don't think that I would depend on him for much of anything in terms of steals anymore. He only no. had two this year. He had one in the shortened season. However, he did deal with a hamstring injury that was you know one of his ailments this year. So you know, maybe he get gets you like. Six to eight, but it's not really something that I would uh, I would bank on from. And, and that group I just named, by the way, I didn't include Jorge Polanco, who was fourth at the position this year in Roto production. Yeah, I didn't include Javier Baez. Uh, you could, maybe I should, maybe I'd include Polanco in points leagues. Maybe I'd include Baez in in Roto, but that's like that's a lot of talent at that position. You know that that'll last pretty deep into the draft. I mean. Maybe through round like seven, round eight. Pretty pretty strong group there. A strong group indeed, and it rolls on. 11 through 15 at second base. Jonathan India, Jake Cronenworth, Jazz Chisholm, Tommy Edmond, and Brendan Rogers. So some very interesting names here, and, and I'm going to start with one that I think, specifically in Roto Leagues, I'm going to be pretty excited about for next year. <laughs> Jazz Chisholm, 18 homers, 23 steals in only 124 games this year. The problem is he's he's kind of he's kind of an enigma. Like he's hard to figure out. 311 batting average, 969 OPS the first month of the season, 236 batting average, 681 OPS the final 5 months. Now he dealt with a bunch of injuries during that stretch, but this is just one of those kind of like eye testing Scott where I've seen enough from Jazz Chisholm to know that he is a really talented baseball player. Like, he hit a, a mammoth home run off of Jacob deGrom on a pitch that was, like, at his eyes, and it was, like, 101 miles per hour, and he, like, hit it to the upper deck. And on top of that, he has, like, blazing speed. So I think I've seen enough to know that he's just, he's talented. Oh, he's definitely talented. And, and honestly, given the way his minor league career played out, I would have expected worse than a 28.6% strikeout rate from him as a rookie. I mean, that's not a good strikeout rate, but you know, we see guys with like 35% strikeout rates hold down jobs in the majors. And uh, you know, I, I assume Jazz Chisholm would be more in that range. He did hit only 228 in the second half after a hot start, had an 662 OPS in the second half. So a, a lot of development still to be done here with Jazz Chisholm. But for playing only 124 games, there were some injuries in there. 124 games. He had 18 home runs, 23 steals. I mean, you just project that out over 160 games, and obviously that's a guy you want to have in your road of a lineup. Less so in points leagues. And uh, I, I'd, I'd knock Tommy Edmond down a few spots in points leagues as well. 
Chisholm and Edmund both have that stolen base element that is so coveted in five by five, uh, but less so in points league. So you can knock them down a few spots there. They wouldn't be top 15 for me, but they are going to be players who are drafted to start. I, I, I think there's a clear drop off here still, you know, maybe you include India with the Jorge Polanco, Cattell Marte tier, maybe not. I think he's right on the border of that. But then when you, you get past India to Cronenworth, Chisholm, Edmund, certainly Brendan Rogers, you're, you're not dealing with the same assurances. Not clear exactly what the upside is. I, I don't think Cronenworth and Edmund have the same kind of upside. Jazz Chisholm, maybe, but as I said, not a lot of assurances there. So, you know, this this is the point where you probably don't want to wait this long to get your starting second baseman, but as a middle infielder in a Roto League, they're they're obviously going to be useful for you. He reminds me a lot of, just skill set-wise, Byron Buxton. So, it like we've been waiting forever for Byron Buxton. It looked like it was happening la- uh, last year. So, we'll see. We'll see if uh, both Chisholm and Byron Buxton can can get it done in 2022. Uh, There was another name in this group. This was your 11 through 15. And uh, Brendan Rodgers. I mean, we got to talk about your guy, Scott, because Brendan Rodgers, how many times did we tell people to pick up Brendan Rodgers this past season? And he winds up hitting 284, 15 homers in 102 games, 798 OPS. It was solid. It wasn't overwhelming. He didn't steal any bases, but... I think we're like one step closer to if he stays healthy next year, like we get that breakout season from Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, it feels very close for a guy who has who had the top prospect pedigree and, and kind of dropped off the map because of some injuries and his first very brief stints in the majors. Uh, he just looked totally punchless. So I think if nothing else, what he accomplished in 2021 was opening people's eyes again to his upside. And, you know, he only recently turned 25. So he's still, you know, just right in his prime. Uh, he needs he needs to hit for more power. I, I don't know that he's going to walk more. That's just, I don't think that's part of his skill set. So, you know, that, that hurts his value. But I, I don't think we can expect more from that. I think the fact that he did so much of his damage on the road, as we talked about many times during the season, even though Coors Field should be an environment that boosts his production. I, I take that as a good sign. You see a Rockies hitter perform well on the road. You know there's the potential for big numbers because of what they could do at home. And uh, doesn't strike out much. So you know, hopefully he can prove that launch angle a little bit and, and, then, uh, and then maybe we'll see a big breakout for him. And uh, that's why I have him 15th here. 16th for what it worth for what it's worth would be Ty France. And this is the range at second base where you see first base kind of pull ahead. Because Jake Cronenworth, I have him 13th here at second base, right? Versus ninth at first base. So, you know, in that range, that that kind of second tier range, second base is ahead of first base. But then you get here with Ty France, 16th. I'm 16th at first at, at second base. I have him 19th at first base. So, you know, maybe that round 10 to 15 range in drafts is where first base pulls ahead of second base. 
So that's why I think you could make a case that either one is stronger than the other. It just kind of depends how deep the dra- how deep of a draft you're in. All right. Uh, you already mentioned Ty France. He is 16th in your rankings, but the rest of that list, so 17 through 20, is DJ LeMahieu, Chris Taylor, Eduardo Escobar, and Ryan McMahon. LeMahieu is he's a tough one. He's a tough one to figure out. He's a little bit older. Obviously, he got the pretty big contract last offseason and did not live up to expectations. So we'll see if he has anything left in the tank. But obviously, you know, if he's leading off for that lineup in that stadium, like, I think there's always going to be decent upside. It's just a matter of uh, can he get back there without the bouncy ball? Which well, he's going to be usable at least. I don't know that I'd call it upside. 2.62 head-to-head points per game. That was the same as like Luis Rios. He was magical. bad. He was bad, Scotty. He, like, he was bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usable. Usable in a deep enough league, but if you're talking about a 12-team head-to-head lineup, you you obviously don't want 2021 DJ LeMayhew to be in it. Sure. So, you know, the reason I rank him ahead of a couple of those other guys I mentioned is because you're just hoping something weird was going on with him in 2021 and he bounces back with early round production again. But my hunch is that DJ LeMayhew was a victim of the the deadened baseball and we're not going to see that 2019-2020 version again. Who knows what kind of baseball we're going to get in 2022. I hope that there is some kind of indication of that uh, by the time we are actually talking about our real drafts. Uh, before we wrap up here, Scotty, just an early target. Anyone that stands out to you at the second base position that you know, that guy, I'm going to I'm gonna be interested in drafting that guy. Other than Brendan Rodgers? <laughs> Other than Brendan Rodgers. Um, hmm. It really is going to depend on how things play out in drafts because that that big cluster I talked about in that that second tier, like I'll just I'm happy to take whichever one of them lasts the longest. I have a hunch it'll be Max Muncie because you know the the bumpy finish dropped his batting average below 250, and maybe he's only like a 250 260 hitter, but. You know, it's going to be a ton of home runs, RBI, runs scored in that Dodgers lineup. They don't take him out against lefties because he's actually even better against lefties. He's dual eligible. Unfortunately, not third base eligible anymore, but dual eligible. So I think I'm going to end up with a lot of Max Muncy. Yeah, I think I'm going to look Jazz Chisholm in category leagues and Roto. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited about what the guy can do. Uh, another year in the majors. Hopefully, the Marlins could do something to. Uh, help out that lineup because clearly it's you know it's not a great lineup, but yeah, power speed combination for him. It's I think talent is massive for for Jazz Chisholm and and then Jonathan India. I, I really like what I saw this year. Line drive rate was was massive the the final four months of the season. Uh, I want to see what they do with the rest of the Reds lineup, but good OBP skills can run a little bit, some power just gives you a little bit of everything. Uh, so yeah, Jonathan India. He kind of reminds me of like Dansby Swanson at the second base position, which it's not like an elite player, but it's still very valuable. So, uh, Jonathan India. I actually think Jonathan India is better than Dansby Swanson. I say, as I wear the Braves jersey here. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) I like him even more than that. I I would be fine with India as my starter. I'd be fine with, like, Polanco is somebody I could see myself having a lot of shares in again, just because some, I think people might go overboard and, and downgrading him. On the other side of the spectrum, anyone that you think you might avoid? Well, Baez is the easy answer because I'm always avoiding him. Uh, 
I don't see my I I actually see myself draw, drafting Merrifield a lot more in points leagues than I do in Roto for the argument I laid out. I just don't think I just don't think I want to sell out that hard for stolen bases and in Roto going forward. Um it, I don't want to be I don't want to draft somebody primate like I don't want to elevate him so much because of stolen bases that it ends up costing me in too many of the other offensive categories because it's just one category, you know, and all the other categories work together in a way stolen bases don't really. Mm-hmm. And I just think I'm I'm fine accidentally finishing eighth in stolen bases, you know, if 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 I build a good offense otherwise. I'm right there with you. Those are the two names that stood out to me right away. Whitmerry Field and Javier Baez, I think are two that I might be avoiding here in 2022. Uh, lastly, I, I do want to just bring up a few prospects to know for next season. Maybe next season. I don't know that all these guys are going to make it to the bigs, but uh, they are slowly approaching Major League Baseball. Nolan Gorman with the Cardinals. 279 batting average this past year. 25 home runs. Does definitely have some legitimate power. I, I think we see him decently early next year. I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised by that uh, for yeah, Nolan season. Yeah, uh, Nick Gonzalez for the Pirates. He he was the seventh overall pick in the 2020 draft. 302 batting average, 18 homers, seven steals this past season. The Pirates, they're I, a, I just, they're a ways away. I just I don't know that they yeah. need to rush him. So I would yeah I would guess we don't see Nick Gonzalez next year, but I do have him ranked because I think there's a chance. Okay, uh, Xavier Edwards with the Tampa Bay Rays. This guy is like a clone of Nick Madrigal, Scotty. 302 batting average, zero homers. 19 steals, 42 strikeouts in 79 double A games. He makes a lot of contact. Yeah. He's going to run, but I'm not very excited. I, about, I, about I hope they would establish Vidal Brujan before they turn to Xavier Edwards, but hopefully, hopefully uh, Michael Bush with the Dodgers. He was the 31st overall pick back in 2019, 267 batting average, 20 homers and 870 OPS at double A this past season. The problem the now, Dodgers are obviously awesome. So, they don't now have this is like a Max Muncy clone. Yeah, tons of on base ability. Uh, it might have a higher batting average ceiling than Max Muncy. There were some issues this year that brought his batting average down to two sixty seven. But the scouting reports like him for average more than that. I, I'm really high on Michael Bush. I have him in a lot. Of, I have him in multiple dynasty leagues. I shut everybody down who tries to trade for him. <laughs> I, I'm really high on Bush. All right, and the last one is Justin Foscue with the Texas Rangers. He was the 14th overall pick in 2020, and man, he he looks he looks like a good one. 275 batting average, 17 homers, a 960 OPS between rookie, high A, double A this past year. So he progressed three levels, and he handled himself throughout. So mm-hmm. I think that is a pretty exciting name. Don't yep. know if I guess there's a I chance we'll see him can, next year. Yeah, he's, he's already. He's going to be like 23 next year, I think, yeah. and has already advanced to double A. So I do think Justin Foskey will see next year, even though he was the same draft class as Nick Gonzalez. And I'm high on him, too. Yeah, they have a few prospects coming in, Foskey and Josh Young. So maybe potentially midseason call-ups for both of those guys. Yeah, I'm trying to find his age. He's 22 years old. No, it'll be 23 before opening day. Next 23 year. by March. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So we will wrap there. For Scott, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Baseball today. We'll be back again on Thursday with the third base position. Bye bye.
Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property, it's the location and neighborhood. Homes.com offers in-depth neighborhood guides with detailed video overviews, comprehensive narratives, and unbiased information from a multitude of sources. You thought we go in-depth with player analysis on Fantasy Baseball today? You haven't seen anything yet. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood complete with a video guide. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. When looking at local schools, they offer test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework.